welcome to the tip of the iceberg with the Institute of Refrigeration. In this podcast, we're looking at the issue of the net zero cold chain, a conversation that was held during the IAR International Conference on the Cold Chain in April 2022 on the topic of carbon reduction opportunities. The conversation is chaired by Julie Hazen of the Global Cold Chain Alliance. Our panelists discuss a wide range of topics all around the theme of doing more with less. They look at that in the context of changing customer demand and the role of financial incentives available from government. It is now the time to invite our panelists for an open discussion on, on the topic of carbon footprint production. We will welcome on the floor uh, Mrs. Andrea Voigt, who works for Danfoss Climate Solutions as the head of global public affairs. Uh, and she's a member of the strategy and sustainability team. We will also have uh, Brian Churchyard, who's the head of engineering, net zero and energy at ASDA. Uh, we will have Shane Brennan, who is the CEO of the Cold Chain Federation in the UK, an experienced uh, lobbyist and campaigner. And uh, we will have uh, Mrs. Melanie Yansing, who is the Senior Technical Energy Advisor at the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy at the University of Cambridge. Welcome, everyone. Um, I would like to trigger a first question, uh, maybe. Uh, looking at the reality of the market and the, let's say, the consequence of the COVID pandemic with the uh, uh, tremendous rise of the e-commerce, is this rise of e-commerce contradictory with uh, the efforts to be more carbon neutral or is it an obstacle to it? And so how, uh, how can the industry react to that market trend that is pushed by the consumers? Uh, I'm, I'm happy to speak to that. Um, so... As there is a, a large UK-based retailer, and certainly to the question of the pandemic and the impact and the, the increase in online activity was significant. I think growth occurred within a matter of months versus a, a five-year plan of growth. Um, what that's created is a, a requirement for additional um, cold chain requirements within the, the business. So additional cold room space, frozen food to, to be able to support that, up, that operation utilizing as best we can existing um, equipment that already exists within our superstores. But because the growth has been that rapid, it, it has required us to put additional systems in place to be able to, to cope with demand. So, so therefore, what we are effectively looking at is against the backdrop of more equipment means more fugitive emissions and greater energy consumption. And trying to find ways to offset that is challenging. But I guess the change of shape of supermarkets will also change over time as, as we see that growth and innovation will start to kick in further and to try and understand what the best way to operate these buildings are. Thank you, Brian. Anyone else from the panelists would like to react on that? So how realistic is it to achieve the net zero by 2050 with those you know, market developments that cannot be anticipated maybe? Or- well, I'm speaking on behalf of Bayes. So for those who don't know, in the UK is the Department for Energy and Industrial Strategy. The, the, the challenge with a big change in market and how the market organizes, it, it, we lose the evidence behind making policy. So although this doesn't make it impossible to get to net zero by 2050, of course, this has to come with a big data collection system and monitoring system to, to understand what impact they have on emissions so then policy and regulation can follow in an evidence-based way. On the one hand side, we have the refrigerant-related emissions in the scope one um, with the 
global warming potential obviously playing an important role. And on the other hand side, we have the energy related emissions. And here, and I think um, the, current, uh, the current crisis as well um, in terms of energy makes it even more evident <laughs> that we really, really have to decarbonize the electricity generation. And as we decarbonize the electricity generation, we will see more renewables coming into the system. And as we see more renewables coming into the system, it will be extremely important that we can provide the required flexibility to cope with this uh, intermittency of those, of those energies. And I think there our sector can also make quite a big contribution because um, we have that possibility um, to, to also integrate different sources and make sure that, for example, we use the waste heat from the cooling in an integrated way and not just look at, at silos. And I think what, what we really need is, a, is the right framework to make this happen or to support this integrated approach rather than just looking at the cooling equipment in isolation and at the electricity generation in isolation, but really, really bring it together. And if, if I look um, at legislation in that respect, if I take as an example the recast of the Energy Efficiency Directive, which we see at EU level right now, there are opportunities in that sort of policy measures which really can support this, such as, for example, a man mandatory energy planning to make sure that these energy needs, so where does the energy occur, where is it available, where is it needed, to really bring it together and make sure that uh, those synergies can be, can be used in the most efficient way. And that would then in turn help to decarbonize the electricity system, and that in turn helps then to also uh, reduce uh, the indirect emissions next to energy efficiency, obviously, which is uh, which is the other big thing um, and which goes hand in hand, basically reducing the need to uh, to produce that energy in the first place. Thank you, Andrea. And obviously, it's not only uh, cold chain operations and refrigeration equipment. When we talk about e-commerce, it's also about packaging. Um, it's everything. It's a holistic approach, and uh, there might be some challenges to have all the different players uh, working hand in hand, collaborate together towards that, you know, uh, common effort. Shane, any views on your side? I guess you, Andrew, is really, really sort of hitting the key point for me, which is the interrelated nature of net zero targets for different actors. And you know, scope what so my scope one emissions is your scope three emissions, and, and vice versa, and so on. Um, so I guess that on the positive side of that, everyone's got the same kind of overarching objective: do more with less, use less, and find ways to use less within the scope within the terms of what what you currently uh, do. Whether that on its own, though, if you just take it the aggregate of everyone else, everyone trying to get to net zero or trying to get to zero emissions, that doesn't achieve overall net zero because there will be trade-offs. By, by one actor trying to do, uh, trying to get down to zero, they're going to start to palm off problems and, and issues into, into other parts of the supply chain. So the absolute key thing is the ecosystem. It's how do these interrelate to each other? Where's the transparency of information and where's the shared goal and the shared goal goal within, within, within the system. And actually, I think something like the growth of e-commerce is actually a neutral point. I don't think that is in any way a driver one way or the other, because ultimately there's trade-offs there. So the question then is, is who, how, do we, how do we create the platform for shared understanding of what the, what the end goal is? And do we do that at the government level? So like for the whole of the, the UK, in my case, or do we do it at the supply chain, so farm to fork in a linear way, or do we do it in some other way? And I think that's probably still 
pretty unclear. And the more we talk about it, the more complex we make it, rather than necessarily we find clarity. But nonetheless, start from the first point. If everyone has shares the same objective, then we go a long way towards our goal, whether we ultimately achieve net zero or not, is a, a secondary point. Thank you, Shane. Uh, another point now, do you feel that financial investment that's needed to be more carbon neutral today hampers some industry players to move faster towards reducing footprint? Uh, and in this case, should there be more incentives from governments? I mean, absolutely. I think, I think there's a big difference. So one of the questions we have at the moment is government policy, certainly in the UK, is very focused on R&D finding the next widget or gizmo that's going to transform the nature of a process. And yes, you know, if you throw, there are, there are times when you do that kind of investment and you discover something or you make something come into existence that didn't exist before that will transform things fundamentally. I think now sort of four years into talking at Cold Chain, I don't think we know whether that, I don't, there's not the known unknown of the, of the gadget or gizmo that's going to transform things fundamentally. So it is about marginal gains and, and incremental change. The other, so, then, so then if it's not about that, then it's about getting operators using better, more efficient systems. And that involves costs, particularly if you're talking about a refrigerated warehouse, or you're talking about a operator operating fleet. How do they make up the gap between what currently costs, you know, £100,000, but, but is going to cost £150,000 with the greener alternative? How do you make up that shortfall in the cost? And currently, UK government policy really doesn't go into that area at all. Um, in fact, if anything, it's an actual move against doing that. And that then creates a barrier for businesses like myself. We're trying to advocate businesses to do the right thing in inverted commas and, but, and spend more money up front to do the greener or more efficient technology. But they just don't have the, the, the business case for that. So how we find the shortfall between those two things, I think is really important. If you look around the world, the most advanced uh, places or the places that are seeing the biggest acceleration in change are putting those financial subsidies in adoption, into technology adoption, to make a to make a difference, yeah, I'd, I'd echo I'd echo what's being said there. I mean, as a as a cost sensitive uh, retailer, we we are able to deploy low carbon solutions through energy reduction um, that has to be proven um, absolute in terms of any in, any investment that's put in place. Um, the other thing is part of those measures is doing something over a life cycle benefit in terms of what those measures are. So not just looking at the immediate quick fix, but what does it mean long-term in terms of the application investment of that technology? Because when you look long-term with a long-term lens, you're not just taking the, the financial benefits of the energy savings, which then will obviously bring into it carbon savings, but it will also bring the car carbon tax benefits, which will be inevitable in the future. So you end up with two financial benefits for an initial upfront capital investment. Through energy savings, kilowatt hours reduced of the pounds you're paying for or, or euros that you're paying for energy, as well as the decarbonisation of national grids that will revolve around that. But equally, you will take the benefit of those carbon um, emissions reductions over time. So, and it's also making that technology of the future, which was explained there, we're still trying to figure out what that is. The more affordable it can, affordable it can be, the more of it can be done and the quicker it can be done. But I don't think it's necessarily one solution will fit all. We're talking about a toolbox of solutions here, but you can't speak to carbon and energy in isolation. They have to go hand in hand in the same discussion. 
Yeah, definitely. And adding to this, perhaps also what would be needed is to further valorize, for example, if I'm coming back to what I said previously on, on the integration of, of sectors, to valorize, for example, if if waste heat is being reused so so that it becomes an incentive and not uh, not something which has no, no value for for those who reuse uh, the waste heat. Because right now, why would you do that if you don't have uh, something which uh, is beneficial? That's one. And same goes for flexibility. If you can offer flexibility, for example, as a supermarket, if you can offer flexibility to a grid operator, or what are you getting in return? To what extent is this interesting for you? So why would you do it in the end? I think that goes very much back to the to the business case and to the business model, which we need to make those uh, those uh, things happen. And also perhaps a third thing I wanted to mention is the the ESCOs, like um, is um, uh, is is our um, service-based business models where you would take away the initial. Uh, investment cost and where you would then pay as you as you use or pay for the service or pay for the for for the cooling or for the heating that is that is required maybe that's also a way to further incentivize and create uh, business models um, to make those things happen aside from easily saying well uh, governments just need to put rules in place and need to force people which in itself will unlikely be enough it's it's really creating the entire business model around it yeah um so just to add on to what you said i i agree with all of you um so coming from a government perspective uh, the, the funding so far has been mostly around innovations and funding innovations and i can give two examples of recently funded by bay's projects supporting demonstrator of of an efficient systems cooling systems or or new cooling systems. Uh, and I think that it has been, and the IEA has, de has declared in three reports in a row, 2018, 2019, 2020, that cooling has been a policy blind spot. So it's potentially that there has been a bit of overlooking to that sector, uh, but that's not for no reason. It's also that cooling was 2% of UK greenhouse gas emissions, whereas heating was a much larger share of emissions. And so the focus has been on the bigger, si bigger size of the pie, but obviously now that we've got net zero targets, everything is being looked at, including harder to obey areas. But also another reason is that the TRLs, the technology readiness levels are quite low. And so many reports have shown that even though it's very it's very hard to reduce the cooling emissions and the trade-offs as have been mentioned are quite complicated to determine and they're not known yet. So we know that packaging will, uh, will be a net benefit, but to what extent will it be there's a shift in terms of the size of emissions of the cold chain compared to the food production. But that, now that this is also a relatively new process and things are changing. And obviously, and as you've been saying, as there's so many different areas at which we can reduce our emissions, not just energy systems or the efficiency gains, but also packaging. It's difficult to make an overarching policy given how policies are organized in different areas. It is difficult. And it's something, as you said, we all have to work towards together. And I agree. So, for example, talking about the waste heat recovery and integration of systems within Bayes, this will fit within uh, heat networks uh, policy making, whereas other types of efficiency will come from different policy angles. Just trying to provide a different perspective here. Thank you very much, Melanie. Always uh, good to hear uh, the government perspective indeed. Uh, we know there are still some paradoxes out there. Just to give an example, we've talked about a lot uh, cold storage, but refrigerated transport is another main key sector where carbon footprint is pretty significant. And when you look at the mobility package, the EU mobility package that forces somehow uh, drivers to get back to the 
home company with empty trucks, it's a little bit paradoxical to what we should do to, you know, be more sustainable and uh, uh, be more efficient in terms of uh, energy usage. Exactly. But on this, actually, it always comes back to data. I think now that we have better ways of gathering data in real time, and even that has its challenges today, we're not at a point where we can just put sensors everywhere and get reliable data. Knowing how many transport refrigeration units there are, how much energy they're using for cooling is something that's actually not known today. So trying to make something to, to improve this is still a challenge given where we are. We, we, I think sometimes we wish we were further ahead of what we know than we are. We've got some great ideas on that, Melanie. We'll, I'm sure you've seen them before. We'll send them again on how, on how we get that data into a better place in the UK, at, at least. Yeah, we, we know data is a crucial thing that everybody's looking for, but no, nobody's uh, willing to share. Shane, do you feel like there is a shift from industry to be more open to sharing data with those uh, big uh, objectives? And I think there's definitely a big shift. I mean, I, mean, I, think, I think everyone is, you know, I think the, the biggest cause for optimism is how sort of commercial attitudes are shifting towards understanding the shared goal around these issues and starting to take some of the data points that would have traditionally been completely seen as completely commercially sensitive to realizing and challenging that and saying actually these aren't that commercially sensitive and, and actually whether it be through a direction of travel around government forced transparency or just generally understanding that there is that 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 opportunity to to learn by sharing um, on, on some data points is, is really good but I think we are still up against that one fundamental barrier to this, because ultimately these are about ecosystems, as I said it before, of, of collaboration between commercial actors. And um, we're still in a place where ultimately the commercial interest sits at the, as the paramount in, in the situation. And therefore we do have fragmentation of visibility of, of, of what, what's, what's happening to a product as it moves through a, through a supply chain or the like. And, so I think that probably the single biggest innovation area isn't the piece of kit, isn't the new refrigeration system, it isn't the new, the new, uh, the new vehicle. It's going to be that data, that way of gathering and sharing data across platforms, across commercial actors, that probably is the key to net zero, in my view. Yeah, exactly. But exactly, and I think the, the the power that we have with all the with digitization and all the technologies and remote monitoring and sensing and. I mean, there is, is really a super wide range of, of technologies and, and possibilities in order to achieve that. But to really bring this to, um, to success or to fructuation is, is also difficult because of what you were just saying, Shane, because of this fragmented nature of, of this sector. And that fragmented nature is also the reason why it's not getting the attention probably that it is um, that it should get because that you have all these little <laughs> parts um, which are somehow related it's super complex the cold chain and as soon as you start digging into one thing you will see that it'll be related to another thing and and there is this lack of a, of a coherent approach and collaborative approach um, of the different stakeholders together. And I don't have a solution to that, but I just, it resonates very well with, uh, with what I wanted to say as well. But, but perhaps with the digitization, we really have a tool or a vehicle to, um, to make this happen in terms of platforms and in terms of sharing and bringing those, uh, those different fragments together. Thank you. Uh, we're almost at the end of our session. Maybe a last question. Do you have a view on what enough and other similar projects should concentrate on? Are there specific sectors of the food chain or types of carbon emissions that we should focus more on? I think it was just mentioned there that without the data, you just have opinions. 
Um, and it's as simple as that. I think without the data is the start point benchmark of everything. Um, so if there's an opportunity to influence and harness capture more efficiently, all of that information, then it really gives you a great starting point. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, some data points were pretty um, striking and somehow disturbing, um, especially for me representing the cold chain sector, cold chain logistics, and to see that the level of emissions for storage was so low compared to others. Uh, it got me to wonder whether it's it's an issue of data sourcing or lack of data, or is it, is it the reality? Um, I think as I, to, to answer your question, Julie, I think I think I think it's both. I think I think I think there is the data isn't great in lots of in lots of places, or at least it's certainly not very comparable between different sources. So coming up with a better way of understanding the data would be really good. I guess if I had a research question, a hypothesis for testing that I think needs more more attention, is the issue of how we and i think it does play into this idea of the ecosystem is how are we gathering how are we measuring and maintaining the right temperatures through supply chain and often we think about the right temperatures through the eyes of food security in the case of food so how do we make sure we never go above a certain point how we maintain integrity of product through the chain that i think often leads to over chilling and overcooling. A net zero world, and surely the environmental impact of what you're doing with that to that product is as important as the food security and how you address those two things. So I think understanding the challenge of end-to-end -end product monitoring through a chain, I think, and understanding how you do that, how commercial actors could do that in the right way, I think is probably the question that I would be most interested in understanding research on. I know there's been stuff on that at different points, but I think we could go, we take that one on even further now. Yeah, and I would support that and, and add to it perhaps um, that uh, the, the role of digital solutions in that respect in order to make that happen. I think that would be really very useful to dig further into. Thanks, Andrea. Any other closing word from uh, Brian and Melanie? I'll just conclude by saying I thought it was very interesting how all the products have been broken down by product type and across the chain. And understanding the trade-offs between these different food types and elements of, can help focus policy making towards the most efficient or whatever the area with the most impact that would be very helpful in the first instance and secondly to use data uh, and, pre and present data with uncertainty ranges so that policymakers have an understanding of how um, certain we are um, and understand yeah to levels today. Brian any additional um, just just the final piece around when we speak of direct indirect emissions and energy needs to be spoken um, in, a, in a collaborative way, not in isolation from each other. They're, they're all as equally important as each other. Reducing one could have a negative impact on the other if we, if we don't look at it holistically. Very good. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you all our panelists. Uh, I think it was a great light shed on, on this uh, very interesting and still not very known topic. was the tip of the iceberg from the Institute of Refrigeration. We hope you're enjoying our podcasts. Please like and share and follow the podcast and join us on the next edition.